We join hands together to pray. <clears throat> it's a symbol of our unity in Christ and our commitment to Him and the fact that we are brothers and sisters in the faith. And so, Lord, we thank you for coming to resolve the dilemmas in our lives, for being the solution to the paradoxes. We thank you, Father, that you have come to help change our hearts. We try to do it. We try to do it through work, even through worship, and oftentimes through worry. But none of those work. We thank you, Father, that you have promised through your love and grace to bring peace within the divided parts of our lives and to do as you did throughout your earthly ministry to make people whole. Bring us together within ourselves individually and bring us together with your people in common worship and praise to you, our living Lord, the answer to all of our dilemmas, in whose resolving and loving name we pray, amen. You know, from the time Jesus began his public ministry, he was in hot water most of the time. Hot water because he was so inclusive of all people, whereas the religionists of his day, ultra-religionists, very legalistic, very judgmental, very exclusive, were always barking at his heels, criticizing him. Those people are known as the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Their name changes through the centuries, but the spirit prevails. Uh, the attitude perpetuates itself from generation to generation, unfortunately. The people who feel that they're the only ones right and everybody else is wrong and anyone who's different is a sinner. And that's what the Pharisees thought. If, they, if you were anything different from what they were, you were a sinner. Uh, if you uh, were a leper, for example, uh, that was just the ultimate of all sins. You were an outcast. You were unclean. You were not even allowed to live in the communities with everyone else. Uh, if uh, you had uh, epileptic seizures, they considered that you were demon-possessed. Uh, if you were outside their religious definitions of acceptability... Uh, you were a sinner. So just about everybody was a sinner except them. And so they gave Jesus a very uh, difficult time, and he had uh, many confrontations and controversies uh, with them. They figured that uh, Jesus, for example, let me read you in the 15th chapter of first, uh, of Luke, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, and I want to speak on it this morning. But I want to introduce it with what, what, what the setting was for the stories that Jesus told. It says, By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars, they're called the Levites, the priests and the Levites, the Pharisees and the religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased, they growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Well, you know, the Bible very clearly states in the passage of Scripture I read earlier from the 7th and 8th chapters of Romans, Paul's statement, 
where he admits to the fact that, uh, as he once said, that he was the chief of sinners. He was the biggest sinner he knew because he knew more about himself than he knew about anybody else. And so all of us are sinners. We've not all sinned alike, but all alike have sinned. In one way or another, we're all sinners. And we need to accept that fact. We're all in this boat together. We need to be reminded of that fact, particularly in the day when people begin to, to divide up folks dependent upon their attitude toward uh, individuals, the color of their skin, the language they speak, the political party to which they belong, the church they attend. With that in mind, let me share two quotes with you that I think are very helpful. They are to me and maybe will be to you. The first from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Soviet dissident, Nobel Prize winner, one of the most powerful men, one of the men whose influence, whose writing and life had a lot to do uh, with the demise of the Soviet Union. He said this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties but right through the human heart. And many years ago Reinhold Niebuhr wrote the Christian faith ought to persuade us that political controversies are always conflicts between sinners and not between righteous men and women and sinners. We're all sinners. And Jesus came to deal with all sin and with all sinners. And they were criticizing him because he was associating himself with people who by their definition were sinners. Doubtful reputation, it says. So he said, let me tell you all some stories. And he told them those three classical stories in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. The first story is about man who had a hundred sheep and he lost one of them. He said, if you lost one, what would you do? Well, you'd go after it. And then the next story was about a woman who had ten pieces of silver and said, if you lost one piece, what would you do? Well, you'd go after it. You'd look for it. She'd sweep the house, light a candle, sweep diligently, the Bible says, until she found it. And then he came to the third story, and I believe the greatest story that Jesus ever told it's the pearl of all parables. If I were told by the Lord himself that I had one story that he told uh, during his ministry uh, to preach from for, the, for an entire ministry, I, without any doubt, would choose this story. Now, the Good Samaritan runs a close, a close second, but I don't believe there's any story to equal this story of the father and the two sons. It's called the prodigal son, but both boys were prodigals in that they both didn't know their father, didn't understand their father. Now, we realize in this story that the father is God, God Almighty. As James Weldon Johnson says in, in God's trombones, we know that the father is God Almighty and we don't know the names of the sons, but the sons are every 
one of us. We're the two boys. I want to read it to you from Peterson's translation entitled The Message. Then he said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them, them, remember that, both of them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. And after he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with the citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants. Quick! Bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. Given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, the older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The, other brother stalked, the older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him. But he wouldn't listen. The son said, look, how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours, who has thrown away your money on whores, shows up and you go out Oh, you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time, and everything that is mine is yours, but this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. 
this brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he is found. Now I preached on this story literally dozens of times in the nearly 50 years I've been preaching. But I want to share some new ideas with you this morning that have come to me as I continue to think about that story, think about that boy, think about myself and my own story. So as we talk here, think about yourself and what God is saying to you as I'll try to listen to hear what he's saying to me through this incomparable story. One of the things that impresses me about this story is that God is free to give us what we really want. That's kind of scary. God has created you with a free will. He'll not lock you in shackles in the basement of the house to keep you home. It was risky, wasn't it, for God to give us a free will because he knew what we were going to do with it. Risky. You can walk away from God if you want to. You can reject him if you want to. You can leave him out of your life if you choose. He'll not force himself upon you. And so this boy's self-will led him away into misery. Well, he thought he was going away into freedom. Thought he was going away into liberty and have a good time. Wanted to be free. Wanted to be free. We're not free just because we think we are. Our freedom can be a delusion. It can be a crown of lead that makes to swoon the aching head that wears it, as the poet said. How free is the locomotive when he gets off the track? Suppose the locomotive has a free will and it decides it wants to take out there on its own. Pulls off the track, laid down. The track that was put there to give it freedom, freedom to express itself, freedom to move, freedom to accomplish something, freedom to go somewhere and to be something. It decides it has a better way, so it pulls off out there into a muddy field. How free is it? Well, for a while, that locomotive thinks it's free because it sits there and spins its wheels and blows its whistle and thinks it's going somewhere because its wheels are moving and it's making a lot of noise, but it's stuck. And it's not going anywhere until he gets back, until he gets back on track. Nor are we going anywhere until we get on track and run down the track of love and grace that God has placed there for us to live on. This mirage of temptation, when it is lifted, and it is only a mirage, when it is lifted, is a barren desert. Where do you see mirages? In the desert. 
barren desert, a, a desolate wilderness. Its wastes are endless. Its waters are the waters of bitterness. Its shade is spiritual darkness. Its trees bear only deadly fruit. Its singing birds are but the bats and owls from the caves of doom. Its murmuring heat breezes are but the hissings of fiery serpents. Its beauty is artificial. Its promises are false. Its guides are liars. Its reward is a terrible and lonely death. For the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. This boy decided he wanted to exercise his free will, and he went off in the far country. And then he ran into trouble when he ran out of money and he ran out of friends. And he ran out of food. And his needs and his hurts turned him toward home, turned his thoughts toward home. As some writers said, the more he did what he liked, the less he liked what he did. Martha and I talked to a person like this just last night. They said the same thing, only in different words. The more they did what they liked, the less they liked what they'd been doing. Homesick. He got homesick. You ever been homesick? I've been homesick. First time I remember being homesick was when I went to Cub Scout camp. I didn't know many of the kids except those in my den group, and I was had cots and a mosquito net and all that, and I was homesick. I wanted to go home. You ever felt that way? It's real, isn't it? I mean, you ever really been homesick? It's really real. I was much older when I got really homesick again. Those three and a half years I was in the service and like a lot of you, I spent Christmas, I spent two Christmases away from home. Some of you, World War II and Korea, Vietnam, maybe stayed away more than two Christmases. That's tough, isn't it? I got homesick. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. We're all made for home. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, O God. You're never going to find rest until you find yourself back in the Father's house. Homesick. You know, he never knew what value and love of home were really like until he was homeless. So what did he do? His will had taken him away from God or from the Father, and so it took his will to bring him back. I will arise and go to my Father. Not just I feel like it. If your feelings don't ultimately move to your volition and to your will, you'll spend your days in the lowlands and the wastelands. Feelings need to be translated into acts of will. His will took him away 
He said, I will get up and go home. I will do it. Let your feelings motivate you to action. Because <clears throat> there's an insidious temptation that we all have that when we think that when we feel something, we've done something. Feeling is just a fuse that's supposed to explode our will into action. Do it. Even at times when you may not feel like doing it, knowing it's the right thing to do, do it and your feelings will come to heal just like a trained dog. The, most, the strongest part of your personality is your, is your volition and your feelings will fall in line if you'll act on your will. His will took him away. His will brought him back. <clears throat> now a quick word here. He had forgotten his father when things were going well. When he had money and had friends and all, he'd forgotten, he forgot all about father and home and all that stuff. That's why Jesus said, watch out for the deceitfulness of riches. Now, money in and of itself is not evil or good. It's amoral. Money is good or evil depending upon how it's used. You can spend a $100 bill for a mission offering or you can spend it for a woman's body. The, the $100 bill doesn't have any choice in the matter. So the, so the dollar bill is not per se evil or good. It's amoral. It's up to us as how it's used. That's why Jesus said, it was the, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Thank God for people with money who use it for the glory of God and the welfare of mankind. But Jesus said, beware of the deceitfulness of riches. Now, some of you in this room may not agree with this, but I venture to say that 99% of us in this room are by world, the world's standards of income very, very, very rich people. By world standards, you and I are wealthy people. And we need to be careful of the deceitfulness of riches. What does Jesus mean? It means that money will fool you into thinking you don't need anything else but it. That's how it will deceive you. It deceived J.P. Morgan, who once said, as I read, he was talking to a friend who was endeavoring to share with him about God. And he said, why, why do I need God? I have everything I need. I have everything I want. What can God give me that I don't already have? And his wise and loving friend said, what about humility? <laughs> the deceitfulness of riches. It'll fool you into thinking you don't need God. You don't need anybody else. But suddenly when life pulls the rug out from underneath you and you find yourself in some figurative pig pen, then we realize that it was not all that it was cracked up to be. I'm going to get up and go home. Well, he may have forgotten his father, but his father never forgot him. His father never forgot him. If your boy had got up and gone, would you have forgotten him? 
Martha and I were over to Steve and Debbie's house last night, and I was, he said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, well, I'm going to try to talk about my favorite story in the Bible, and he already knew what it was, of course. And we were watching little Avery and Megan playing in a hot tub there, and, and uh, he said, you know, if one of them decided to leave, I don't think I could stand it. I don't know that I could let them, although I know you have to let people exercise their free will. And I said, yes, and every thinking moment, every waking moment, you'd think about her. That father thought about him first thing every morning, and I believe every morning when that father got up, he just looked out down that road with the thought of maybe my boy's coming home today. During the work, during the day, every now and then, you'd think, oh, if he were only here. He always had a lot of life and vitality and energy. I miss him. And I know he prayed for him. I know he prayed for him. Let me tell you something that maybe will help you. It helped me to just rethink this this past week or so when I was thinking about this. Do you realize that Jesus has you on his prayer list? That Jesus is praying for every one of you? That's what he said when he goes back to the Father to be seated at the right hand of God to do what? To make intercession for us. He's praying for you. Other people may be praying for you. We're praying for ourselves, but Jesus is praying for you. And let me give you an example of it. In the 31st verse of the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke, along toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, when the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest and all that sort of thing, Jesus said, Simon, talking to Simon Peter, verse 31, Simon, stay on your toes. Satan has tried his best to separate all of you from me like chaff from wheat. Simon, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you in particular that you not give in or give out. Before you got up this morning and started driving to church, Jesus was praying for you. One of my favorite writers is a Scottish minister of another generation, Robert Murray McChain. And he said, if I could hear Christ, <clears throat> if I could hear Christ in the next room praying for me, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And he's praying for you. His Father, every morning, Every afternoon, every night before he went to bed, he prayed, God, take care of my boy. And then one morning he got up and looked, and he saw 
limping down the road a long way off, shabby clothes. And he recognized him in a second. That's my boy. His heart started pounding and he ran down the road to meet him. The boy tried to make a speech and the father interrupted him, threw his arms around him, kissed him, told the servants to go to the house and get the best robe. And who owned the best robe? Well, it was the father who owned the best robe. Go get the best robe and come put it on this boy. Isn't that what God did for every one of us? He got the best that he had in heaven and wrapped him all around you. That was Jesus. That was the best he had to give. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus wrapped around you. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. And let's kill that calf and let's have a big party because my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he is found. <clears throat> now I want to have a closing word and then a conclusion. You can't talk about this story without talking about how unbrotherly the elder brother was. How unbrotherly the elder brother was. You, did you notice when I read it or you've heard it before? <clears throat> it's been pointed out by all of us many times that this older brother couldn't call his younger brother brother. When he was talking to his father, he couldn't say, my brother, when he came home, he said, when this son of yours, not when my brother, but when this son of yours came home. Couldn't call his brother brother. Because of that, he was angry angry and refused to go into the party. Angry. Let me say parenthetically, I don't believe there's any one thing that's done more damage to the cause of Jesus Christ in our world than elder brother Christians. They've hurt more people and driven more people back to the far country than just about any other single cause. The younger brother was selfish once. The older brother was selfish all along. The younger brother had a broken heart. The older brother had a hard heart. The younger brother, through failure, misery, guilt, realized the priceless worth of love and grace. And the older brother, who had it all, all along, was loveless still. Oh, God, save us from having a nasty spirit. Save me from it. Save your people from having a nasty spirit. 
There's a lot of nasty spirit floating around in our country and in our world today. A lot of it. And I've heard Christians say things about people in public office that they ought not to be saying about anybody under any circumstance. Christians saying words that they'll be held accountable to God for saying. For the Bible says, every word we speak, we will give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Nasty talk. I've stopped watching Jay Leno on The Tonight Show because I got tired of nasty, trashy talk about political figures. I think it's a disgrace. Debate, discuss, disagree over ideas and policies and programs, but to get into nasty, vitriolic talk about personalities, I believe is an insult to God himself. And for Christians to do that, I believe is contemptible. Baptists can be so nasty with other Baptists at times. Isn't that horrible? Christians talking about other Christians. Democrats talking about Republicans. Republicans talking about Democrats. Republicans talking about Republicans. Democrats talking about Democrats. Talk, debate, discuss, disagree. But, oh, God, save us from a nasty spirit. Oh, God, help us to grow brotherly, not elder brotherly. Not elder brotherly. Now, everyone is a Christian at one time or one place on some dusty road of repentance somewhere said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Now, some of us may have gone further into the far country than others. They we did. There's no question about that. But distance makes no difference. To be a Christian means that at some place, sometime, on some dusty road, you've looked at God and said, Father, forgive me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't just mean you're born in America and you go to school, good in, good, <clears throat> speak good English, and are considered civilized. It means that you somewhere, at some time, and some place, have said, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. And I'm not worthy. But I want to thank you and I want to praise you for the loving grace that ran down my own personal dusty road of repentance and threw arms of forgiveness and grace around me and said, welcome home. Welcome home. Come on home. Some of you today Need to make that decision to come home. Home to Christ. And if you want to make your church home, this church, my, you're invited.
We want you. We'd be blessed to have you. We'd be strengthened by you. But make Christ your home. Be sure that you have spoken to the Father on your own road and made your own peace with Him. And then join the family of God. Come to the party. Come to the feast and the fellowship of the family of God. Come on home. I'll be here to greet you. I'm just a butler in the house of the Lord. I'm just a major D in the restaurant of our Lord. All I'm going to do is welcome you. He's the host. He's the heavenly father. It's his house. I invite you to come. Let's stand and let's sing.